Christchurch, New Malden, 18th of August 2019, 6.30 service. David Taylor speaking on A Christian Who Changed My Life. So we're doing a series throughout August in the 6.30 service on The Christian Who Changed My Life. Now the story of who that was for me goes back to the summer holidays a long time ago of 1973, when I was between school and university. I spent it working here, which is a Christian holiday centre in the Savoy Alps, just over the French side of the border from Geneva. It's called Villa Emmanuel, and it's still there, and you can have a holiday there if you want to. I was doing all sorts of odd jobs, mainly looking after the gardens, and during the summer months they had a camping area for those who liked doing that sort of thing. There was a small chapel on the premises, and the staff were expected to attend each day, and the visitors were encouraged to attend as well. Now, since I had attended chapel each day at school, I didn't think it was any particular imposition. On a clear day, you could see the peak of Mont Blanc in the distance, 70 miles away, and it was fun going through the Mont Blanc tunnel into Italy one day and coming back over the top by cable car. What I didn't know at the time was that there was an organisation called Operation Mobilisation, which ran what they called Summer Crusades. They were basically month-long Christian outreaches in countries all around the world with mostly students in their summer vacations on teams who were seeking to bring the good news of Jesus to people who hadn't heard. During the summer of 1973, their main focus was on France. The idea was to have a four-year campaign of summer holiday missions to bring the gospel just to the whole of France. The first two years was to be to the, all the villages in France. In northern France during the previous year, 1972, and then in southern France in 1973, where I, all unsuspectingly, was helping out in this Christian holiday centre. The following two summers, they would be focusing on the cities of France, firstly in northern France in 74, and then in the south in 1975. And teams of about 10 people went out in Volkswagen vehicles to places all around the country to engage the local people with the good news of Jesus. Now, the pastor of this holiday centre knew about this upcoming campaign and invited Operation Mobilisation, or OM as it's normally shortened to, to send a team for a week to the village where the villa was and to run a Christian outreach campaign with nightly meetings in the village hall. He was hoping that villagers, that holidaymakers at the villa might also want to join in. And he organised a choir for the event, I suppose a bit like a mini Billy Graham rally. Anyway, the pastor also ran a series of training sessions in evangelism prior to the arrival of the OM team, and I happily went along to these, uh, these talks. Now, these sessions changed my life, as I had no idea that Christians needed to have the Holy Spirit living in them to empower them to tell the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to those who didn't yet know. So what had been a formality of church going up until then became a living relationship with God for the very first time in my life. We were challenged to confess our sins and trust Jesus' death on the cross to bring forgiveness for those sins, and to believe in his resurrection and to allow his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts and empower us for mission. And I gladly did all this, and then I joined in with some of the door-to-door -door work that they did during the mission. So, 
When I returned home two weeks before heading off to university, I found that I'd not only had a fabulous working holiday, but also discovered and experienced the most important thing in my life, which was a living relationship with God, and the knowledge that God loves me and wants me to get to know him better and better. Anyway, off I went to university, it was Southampton, and discovered that they had something called a Christian union there. I'd never heard of a Christian union before, but it was invaluable for helping me to grow in my Christian life. One of the things that we were encouraged to do in the Christian Union was to join a missionary prayer group. They had about eight different prayer groups, each supporting different missions. They normally met midweek on campus in the lunch hour, some of them weekly, some of them monthly. I'd never heard of a missionary prayer group before, nor did any of the names of these mission societies mean anything to me apart from one. And that was Operation Mobilization. So, since we were all encouraged to get involved in a missionary prayer group, I went along to that one. So the next summer, OM was having the third of their four years of focus on France, this time, remember, in the cities of northern France. And since the previous summer's crusade in villages in the south of France had changed my life forever, I wanted to give something back, and I participated in it. The campaign lasted a month and began with five days of preparation at the Belgian Bible Institute in Zaventem. Mostly students from all around the world gathered there to prepare for a subsequent three, mission, three weeks of mission. I guess there were about a thousand people there. And it was during this time that teams were sorted out who was going to go where, and each team started to meet and pray together. Every team contained several different nationalities, so it was an interesting time. Anyway, it was at this big conference in Zaventum that I first met George Verwer, and he is a Christian who changed my life. I guess, in fact, he had already changed my life before I ever met him, as he was the person who had the vision of seeing thousands of people mobilized, hence Operation Mobilization, to bring the good news of Jesus to people all over the world. And if he hadn't had that passion to see people being made disciples of Jesus and motivating thousands of students from all around the world to use part of their summer holidays to share the gospel with people, I might never have discovered that previous summer that there was a lot more to Christianity than a fairly formal weekly or daily church observance, which up till then I'd been doing. However, I was to discover that there was more to George Verwer than just that. I think if anybody in today's world whom I would describe as the most like the Apostle Paul, I would have to say it was George. He has a passion for people all over the world to hear the good news of Christ and for Christians to be built up in their knowledge and love of him. His preaching has a real earnestness about it. Perhaps he was rather like Billy Graham. In fact, George Verwer had become a Christian in his teenage years at a Billy Graham rally in Madison Square Gardens in New York. And I guess Billy Graham's preaching had been an inspiration to him. George was also really concerned that Christians should immerse themselves in good quality Christian literature. I've heard him preach several times, and each time I think he used to carry onto the platform a handful of about six different books. And the first thing he would do is to say about two sentences on each book, telling the audience why we should buy a copy of it and read it. In fact, to go on at the, on OM for the summer, you were given a reading list of six Christian books. They sent everyone a package of these books well in advance as part of the preparation. 
And these were some of the great classics of Christian discipleship. And I can still remember the titles of most of them now. There was The Calvary Road by Roy Hessian, True Discipleship by William MacDonald, Prayer by E.M. Bounds, The Chocolate Soldier by C.T. Studd, How to Give Away Your Faith by Paul Little, and one or two others, and I can't remember what they were, I'm afraid. But on the application form, we had to write a little about each of these books to make sure that we had actually read them. Over the years, George Verwer himself has written a number of books, and one of them is called Hunger for Reality. And I think that sums up his longing for everyone that he came into contact with, that we should have a hunger, a passion for real life, that life of knowing God. As the Apostle Paul put it in that bit we read, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Hunger for reality. For the Apostle Paul, the surpassing greatness was to know Christ Jesus his Lord. And the same could be said for George Verwer and his desire to see Christ formed in everyone he met. Apparently, some years earlier, he had spent some of his honeymoon living in his, with his new wife in the back room of the only Christian bookshop in Mexico City. It really concerned him that a city larger than London should have only one Christian bookshop at street level. And this lack of Christian literature around the world remains one of his great passions. He set up a Christian publishing house, Send the Light, with the aim of making Christian literature available as cheaply as possible all around the world. Wesley Owen was the name of a chain of Christian bookshops which Send the Light set up. And one of these bookshops was for a few years in Kingston until the rents became too exorbitant in Fife Road and they had to close. But getting good quality Christian books and Bibles out to people right across the world in a plethora of different languages remains one of the great challenges that OM is seeking to overcome. Anyway, back to the conference in Zaventum. At the end of the five days, I went off with a team of about 70 people to a city called Metz in northern France, which was an industrial city on the river Moselle. I remember there were lots of blocks of flats all around which we would visit trying to interest people in the gospel. We slept on a church floor, and then the following summer I joined a team in the city of Bordeaux in southern France, or just about in southern France, and we had about 70 people on that team as well. There are a number of people who have been influenced by George Verwer and OM, and I expect you know many of them. I expect some of you remember Alan Bowl. If you look at that picture there, do you remember Alan Bowl? He came from a church in Dublin, spent three weeks with us here at Christ Church almost two years ago. Here, that picture shows him celebrating 20 years as a minister of his church in Dublin. But when he was over here, he and I went up the River Thames to Greenwich one day, and he was telling me about how he had actually been on an OM summer team many years ago in his youth. But he's not the only person. Anna Larkin's cousin went on OM for three weeks last month to Moldova having just graduated from Cambridge University and waiting to start an internship at a church in Cambridge from next month. 
I'm sure that his time with OM in Moldova will have been excellent preparation for his time working for that church in Cambridge. Nathan Larkin's older brother has been working with OM for many years in the Near East, reaching out to people in a country where it's very difficult to be a Christian. And Nathan's older sister, Emma, several years ago, worked on a Christian ship called Logos II. Here she is with her husband, Ian. She was a nurse and helped with medical care in each of the approximately 30 ports that they visited during their time on board. At that time, OM had two ships sailing around the world, bringing the gospel in each port where they stopped. The other ship was called Doulos. Doulos is the Greek word for slave. It was the oldest passenger carrying ship in the world. It was still held together with rivets when all ships built since World War II were welded together. They were hoping that Doulos would continue in service for a few years more when the ship would have been a hundred years old. But the annual repair cost in dry dock were becoming so expensive that in 2009 there was nothing for it but to sell it. If you look at the picture on, the, on there, I don't know the next picture, you'll, uh, you'll see on the stern of the ship it had a large canvas roof and this contains the large book fair that is the focal point of the ship's visit. It contains both Christian and educational books and I can remember looking around it many years ago when it was in London's Docklands one cold November evening. That canvas roof was flapping around in the wind making quite a noise as they had no electric heaters going to try to keep, as they had electric heaters going to try to keep the drafts out. The idea of having a Christian ship was something that I think only someone with the passion of a George Verwer could have dreamt up. But it was a brilliant vision. The idea was to have a floating book fair that travels the ports of the world and that anyone can come and visit. There's a huge bookshop on board with not just Christian books but also educational books on sale. This photo here is the, is the very first Christian ship that OM bought and they named that one Logos. It was much smaller so much so that when it came to London, it was able to sail under Tower Bridge and moor up alongside HMS Belfast. I think, so the visitors had to walk across HMS Belfast to get on board. I think if you look carefully, you can just about make up the letters EBE on the funnel, and that stands for Educational Book Exhibits. And a huge number of books are stored in the hold so that the ship's book exhibition can be constantly replenished. You have to remember that they are often visiting ports where normally access to books and bookshops, especially Christian books, is hard to come by. And that picture shows a much younger George Verwer with his family standing there in the picture. Now, if you think about it, having a ship like this coming into a port creates quite a stir. The local newspapers often report it, and an important local dignitary generally opens the exhibition, the book exhibition. This creates extra publicity, and the visit of an OM ship can have as big an effect for the gospel in a 10-day visit as a local missionary can have in years. This is their current ship, Logos Hope. That's it there, that's it. Uh, which replaced the two other ships, Logos II and Doulos, about 12 years ago, which had in turn replaced the really small ship, Logos, which you saw in that black and white picture. Logos Hope is much bigger than the previous ships, and its book fair is much bigger 
and doesn't have a canvas roof. If you just take a look at our back page of our latest mission news, if you look on, on the inside, just open it up, I think you've probably got all one on the table there, okay, you'll see a picture of it, okay, so you can see Logos Hope there, okay, so just, just take a quick look at the first paragraph of it, okay, so it says this, meet the Logos Hope, this great ship, ship ministry, the brainchild of Operation Mobilization's founder, George Verla, began in 1970 as part of OM's global Christian training and outreach movement. Since then, their ships, and this is the fourth, have visited 480 ports in 151 countries and territories and welcomed over 46 million visitors on board. And just looking at the next paragraph, Logos Hope travels to parts of the world acting primarily as a floating bookshop with over 5,000 titles ranging from Christian literature to medical textbooks. And they report that on average, one million visitors come on board each year. You can read the next, take it home and read the next of it, okay? But uh, originally, uh, Logos Hope was a ferry to the Shetland Islands. And that's what it used to look like, the ferry to the Shetland Islands. OM bought it when it was being decommissioned from service and paid a, paid a fraction of what it would have cost to buy a new ship. They spent quite a while completely gutting it and transforming it in, inside. So, for example, the car deck on the ferry was converted into a theatre. It's a theatre, so that they could put on events at each port. I gather that they regularly perform their own theatre version of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe to visiting schools and others. The fact that there's over a hundred nationalities living on board the ship is in itself a powerful testimony to the love of God reconciling the nations. And they have an international cafe on board as well, where they can sit and chat with visitors. And it provides opportunity for some fun. There's uh, El Capitino, you can just about see him, welcoming people. About 12 years ago, it toured Britain, including the Shetland Islands, where it originally ship came from, of course. And where I think virtually the entire island came to have a look at their ship and see how it had been transformed inside. I went to see it a short while later when it came to Canary Wharf in London, and I came away from the book exhibition with some excellent cartoon Bible story DVDs, which I've used a number of times for Sunday school. I must admit, looking around it, I would have thought it was a brand new ship, not a completely renovated one. And it's currently working its way up the east coast of South America and is due in Rio de Janeiro in exactly a month's time for a three-week visit there. At the end of the year, it will go to the Caribbean for some months and then cross the Atlantic to Europe. So who knows? Perhaps it will come back to London sometime next year. We shall see. But the ship ministry is just the most visible part of what OM does. Their aim is to bring the gospel to the least reached people groups of the world. And so much of what they do is not particularly glamorous. It's hard graft in difficult parts of the world. So Nathan's older brother and sister spent some time with OM, but what about Nathan himself? Now, he said he didn't mind me telling you this. So he had heard George Verwa speak in Bangor at the World Missions Conference there. It may sound very glamorous holding up World Missions Conference in Bangor, but when it comes to world mission, Northern Ireland is probably well ahead of anywhere, almost anywhere else in the world, with the possible exception of South Korea and Brazil. There are large numbers of missionaries serving Christ all around the world who come from Northern Ireland. 
And Nathan was planning to go on OM and serve in their audiovisual department based in Carlisle near the Lake District. He had already been on an OM team for a brief visit to the Middle East. Here he is. Anybody's well, probably a bit small to look at that. Any, anybody spot which Nathan is there? Anyway. Do you want to, it's actually in one of the most dangerous countries of the world. Do you, do you want to come up and tell us one minute what the picture is? Or, yeah, okay, just come and tell us what you're doing. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, that, that, I'm the one with the, the grey stripe across my jumper in the front row. Um, but yeah, basically that was, that was a full year where they invited small teams to come for one week to, they focused on this Syria, um, and that was in Syria, which obviously looks very different nowadays, um, but we travelled around Syria, um, meeting people, praying, and uh, yeah, sharing God's love in, in small practical ways as well, so yeah, that was a group from Northern Ireland who all went out that week. Yeah, yeah. thank you very much, that's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. So, there we, there we go. Meanwhile, his parents, who are lovely to see you both here, they were members of a local OM prayer group, which met regularly in Northern Ireland, and I'm sure they were praying very fervently for Nathan and his two brothers, or also brother and sister, all, all, all on OM, uh, for their safety and, and other things, and uh, praying for the whole work of OM. Tony Nathan then did an exploratory visit to OM's audiovisual department in Carlisle, and he liked what he saw there. So it all seemed set for yet another member of the Larkin family to join the OM team longer term. However, when you join OM, you have to raise your own finance, and that's regarded as part of learning to trust Christ. Now, given that both his older brother and older sister were with OM, and it would be very much the same people who were already helping to sponsor his brother and sister who would effectively need to be sponsoring Nathan on the mission field. Nathan didn't think it would be really fair to be looking for financial support from these same people yet again. So although his heart was very much set on doing his gap year with OM in Carlisle, he looked around to see whether there was any mission group that would actually pay him rather than needing to raise his own finance. Well, he did find one, that there was a mission in a place called uh, Kingston-on-Thames, wherever that was, and it was called something like uh, Oxygen. And so Nathan came here rather than going on OM, and I'll bet that Anna is mightily relieved that he didn't go with OM, as are we, and life might have been very different for all of us. But I guess Nathan has that same kind of dynamism about the gospel as George Verwa seeks to instill on all those who go on OM. So, what is George Verwa like? There's one aspect of him that you cannot possibly miss, and that's his jacket. And here he is talking on Christian television about his jacket. Come on. What's the story with the jacket? I discovered this about 30 years ago on a director of a mission group at a college, and I thought that's, you know, that's the jacket I need to wear because I'm always talking about the nations of the world. I have my top 40 that all have less than 1% of the witness we have here in the UK, and we feel we're pretty needy. Then I have my top 10. I took about 330 meetings last year, most of the time with this jacket, though often I give it away at the end of a conference. I've gone through 250 of them, Aye. and I've heard that even the president of a nation wore one once. So, uh, but our concern is the nations of the world, and especially uh, the, the suffering people of the world. 
And so in wearing it, are you making that point to those who see you? Or is it partly about reminding yourself about what God has called you to? I think it's both. And I do a lot of times flying. I sometimes hang it on the seat in front of me and pray uh, for the nations. Uh, I also have global underwear, but my wife's not in favor of me <laughs> showing that. So, uh, you know, they're all, of course, we're, we're living in the visual generation. I don't always have PowerPoints. This is my main PowerPoint yeah. below my nose. So my jacket helps me a little bit to uh, be part of this audiovisual generation. Just in case you didn't notice, the jacket was a, a, a map of the world, front and back. So he seems to hang it in front of him on, on his aeroplane and, and uh, prays for, for the nations of the world as he, as he does that. But that illustrates another aspect of George Vella, his passion to pray for the needs of the world. On OM, there would be a weekly half night of prayer for the world. I can remember once praying at about 1 a.m. for the growth of the church in Turkey, along with about 800 other young people at the OM conference in Belgium. And the Turkish church has grown in the decades since that time. There's still a very long way to go, but the gospel has begun to make inroads there over the last few decades. To help people pray for the world, George, George Verwer thought it would be good to publish a book listing every country of the world and what the prayer needs were for each country. Initially, people thought he was crazy and that nobody would buy the book. However, he went ahead with the project, and it must have been no mean feat to gather information from missionaries in every country of the world. And a book called Operation World was published, which did indeed sell well and has been republished several times with constantly updated content. Many people use it in their prayers for the world. So, what is it about George Verla that makes him the most influential Christian in my life? I think the title of his book, Hunger for Reality, sums it up. It's that determination that Jesus should become real each day, not only in his own life, but in the life of millions of other people. It's the desire to pray earnestly for the needs of the world and that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. It's the willingness to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, I guess sleeping on the floor in the back shop in Mexico City Christian Bookshop during his honeymoon was an example of just that. Apparently, before he married Drea, his wife, he warned her, I'm going to be a missionary, and if you marry me, you'll probably end up being eaten up by cannibals. Well, she was prepared to take the risk, and decades later, they are still both very much alive and happily married. It's the willingness to look to God to do impossible things, both through his own life and through those with whom he works. I think God's provision of the series of ships that have had such an amazing ministry in ports all around the world is an example of just that. It's the desire to look to God, to hear and answer the earnest prayers often prayed during the early hours of the night. And above all, it's the desire to see God made real in people's lives. And given that it took an OM crusade to come to that small French village where I was staying for me to become a Christian, I think I can say that I am one of those people in whose life God was made real, in part through the ministry and vision of George Verwa, even though at the time I had no idea who was behind what was going on in that village in the French Savoy Mountains way back in that summer of 1973.